All right, welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have discussions with individuals who are building inclusive and accessible products, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but rather amplify their ideas and voices so more businesses can uh, benefit from their lessons. Today, I am joined by Brad McCannell. Brad is the Vice President of Access and Inclusion at the Rakanson Foundation, where he is responsible for the content and integrity of the Foundation Certification Program, the RHFAC. Uh, Brad also helps the foundation support disability causes nationally. As a leader in the field of accessibility for the past 30 years, Brad has extensive experience in the application of universal design across the built environments, providing accessibility consultations for businesses and organizations, including the 2008 Beijing Olympics and Paralympic Summer Games, Rogers Arena, Richmond Olympic Oval, Vancouver International Airport, and the University of British Columbia, just to name a few. So you might not want to listen to me talk about accessibility, but you should listen to Brad. In this episode, I'll try my best to stay out of his way. So Brad, thank you for joining us. Yeah, pleasure is mine. <laughs> uh, accessibility wasn't your first career. You started in the television uh, television industry, if I'm uh, not mistaken. I did. So I, I, I've had two complete careers now, over 25 years in the television production business. And now nearly 30 years as and accessibility and working around the access issues nationally and internationally. What initially drew you to uh, the television industry and kind of what led you to transition into the roles that you're in now? Well, I started it back in the, this was, I just turned 70, so hard to believe. But I, uh, I literally came out of high school. I was thinking about going to university and trying to decide what to do next. And I, I, I literally stumbled into a new place called City TV. They were building a, a new television station in Toronto. And I just marched in there and told them that I thought they were crazy to try to start a television station without me. And they uh, looked at me and said, why? And I said, well, because I'm young and enthusiastic and I want to do things. So they actually hired me as a uh, office boy. And the uh, the chairman of the company, uh, Moses Nimer, said, if you're still an office boy in six months, you're fired. So it's up to you. And he threw me the ball. And uh, six months later, I was working in the studio as a floor director and then a cameraman. And I became uh, a uh, full-on director, producer, writer. And in, in 1977, I formed Western Video, which is the largest production company in Western Canada for 10 years. And I was doing all that. It was all successful. We're having a great time. Television is a great business to be in. And then my old friend Rick Hansen phoned me in sometime in about 1990 and said, hey, I'm doing the largest Congress and exposition on disability ever held, and I want you to produce it for me. And I thought, well, this will be fun. It combines a couple of my passions. And so I I got to uh, work with it some of the most amazing people in the world of disability. And I hadn't any exposure to it up till then. I kind of lived in my own little world over at uh, television business. Didn't have a lot to do with the, you know, either the advocates or uh, promoting anything in particular. But I, at that conference, I met Justin Dart, who was one of the founders of the ADA in the U.S. And I met Henry Enns from Disabled Peoples International and Laurie Beecham from independent living movement and I suddenly realized what was going on out there I I had blissfully unaware but when I started to see what what was possible there was 2700 delegates from 93 countries around the world and it was a very very big conference 
but it really turned my head around because at the end of the day, when I was talking to Justin, he, uh, he said to me, you're exactly what we need. You understand communications and you understand disability from a lived experience perspective. You need to start carrying the flag. And so I, uh, I switched careers right, <laughs> right then and there. And so I, somewhere uh, between 1977 and then 1990, when you had this exposure to Rick's work, yeah. um, you were in a car accident in 1980. I was, yeah, and uh, about 43% of people with spinal cord injuries end up uh, there because of automotive accidents, vehicle accidents, and I'm one of them. Um, I'm also one of the ones that got saved because uh, around the world there's clusters of disability, and there's lots of reasons for that, but in Vancouver, especially in the lower mainland, uh, there's a large percentage of quadriplegics, and that's directly result of in 1980 they brought in the paramedic service so what an ambulance arrived certainly but with a paramedic on board people were getting saved to you know traditionally you never made it you break your neck <laughs> your mother used to tell you you know slow down you're going to break your neck and she meant you're going to die well most people died back then but the two things that came along with a paramedic service and the invention of a whole series of uh antibiotics and drugs that help people with renal failure. Renal failure is the biggest killer of people with disabilities up till then anyway. And so, you know, it was it was one of those situations where I was uh, in a car accident. I, I technic Technically, if you're not in the hospital in two hours, if you break your neck, then you're probably not going to make it. I was six hours, but I had some great care. I was in a, and, uh, and my timing was perfect in terms of the medical community being ready and and I survived. And so I thought, I got to take this, this next step here. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe it all does happen for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so I'll take this flag and start waving it. And it was interesting to me because when I finished Independence 92, that large conference we were talking about, I, uh, I actually thought I'd drift back in my television world. But what, the phone started ringing and, and it was corporate customers saying, we heard you. You're right. We want to do this. What's the right thing to do? And I thought, okay, I'll do a couple of little consulting gigs on the side and just try to get these guys going. But, you know, for the conference, we needed 242 wheelchair-accessible hotel rooms. And just for the wheelchair users, we had 2,700 other delegates. And so I, I went to the hotels and said, okay, we need 242 wheelchair-accessible rooms. And they said, great, we've got seven. Seventh in the entire lower mainland. And so we had to figure out how to make them accessible. And not only for people with uh, mobility impairments, but people who are blind, people who are deaf, people on the neurodiverse community. We had to find ways of making all these hotels work. And the result of that was I became something of an expert in creating meaningful access in the built environment. So when the Corporate Canada started falling and saying, hey, we, we heard your message at the conference. How do we do this? A couple of things came off my desk and I thought, okay, I'll do a couple of these, but more and more came. And I suddenly realized there's a business here and I can combine that with Justin Dart's inspiration say, I need to communicate. I need to help people understand the issues. And so I married those two things. I married the communication career with the lived experience and added that to the 
real lived, a real practical application of universal design and how do you make things accessible. And uh, so in 1992, that was Canadian Barrier Free Design, and I never looked back. I, I've stayed in this field ever since. So there's about a decade between your accident and your introduction into this line of work. Um, yeah. Did you resume in the television industry? Um, did you take a hiatus from working after the accident? I, I needed a year. It was actually a year to the day because I, I, I got back to work. And that... Um, that was a tough year. You know, sometimes people introduce me as a, and I, and I hate, and we should talk about language a little bit as we go here, but one of the things that happens to me often is people will introduce me as someone who suffers from quadriplegia. And there's so much wrong with that. You know, you know it, it, the problem is if you think I suffer from quadriplegia, then you'll treat me differently. Right. If you think I'm suffering, it, it, it evokes this, this image of someone who's frail and troubled and not going to make it, suffered from disability. I just hate that introduction because, you know, when I broke my neck for that first year, <laughs> I suffered. I definitely suffered. It was a rough, rough ride. You have to learn everything all over again. You have to learn how to, you know, you, you have to either get dressed you have to learn how to walk, <laughs> you know. Now you're walking in a wheelchair, but you have to learn all that movement stuff. You have to learn how to get dressed. You have to learn how to eat. You have to learn how to go on a date. You have to learn how to steal a kiss. You know, like in a wheelchair, it's really hard to get in. You can't just do that you know, movie theater thing where I just lean over. You know, you got you to find a way to do everything all over again. And it was brutal. It was painful. And it hurt like hell. But that was 43 years ago. So when somebody introduces me now as a person who suffers from quadriplegia, no, I'm, I'm not suffering at all, to tell you the truth. I have a wonderful life. I have a beautiful home and a, and a lake in the middle of nowhere. And I, I have a beautiful wife and I have a fabulous service dog. And, you know, I'm not, not suffering. So I hate it when people equate that. Yeah. Because I'm because was of my there, wheelchair, I'm not suffering. Was there a point in your recovery where you became more comfortable uh, with your new situation of like using a wheelchair? Uh, one question we've asked some of the guests uh, with SCI on other episodes is, were you always adamant on walking? I see like that as one big trend with a lot of injuries. Like everyone focuses so much of their energy and attention on the idea of walking again. Um, whereas they might be able to adapt to like a different lived experience um, just in their wheelchair. Yeah, that's the immediate thing. And, and, you know, and, and we all, we're going to walk again. And it, but it, it's a Hollywood idea that if you want to bad enough, if you really, really want to, you, you know, if grandpa's in the well and you have to get up to save him, that you can somehow overcome spinal cord injury. And it's, it's that Hollywood idea and, and it happens to all of us. And in fact, I, I, I spend quite a bit of time talking to newly injured people. And it, it, uh, and it comes up every time. But you very quickly get rid of that. You very quickly realize walking is the least of your worries. You know, I, give me bladder control. Give me bowel control. Give me an orgasm. I don't care about walking. Give me control of my own body again. Those are the things that interest me. 
And I got there very quickly. I, 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 I didn't spend a lot of time looking backwards. I looked before, I, I tend to do that anyway, the glass is half full kind of thing. But at the end of the day, what's important for me was to get out, get out of the hospital, get out of rehab, get back to work. And, uh, and I haven't said all that. I'm actually the luckiest guy in the world. And I, I can demonstrate that in a couple of ways. Number one, on September 24th, it was a Wednesday, I uh, I bought disability insurance. As a cameraman, I thought I should have some insurance in case something goes wrong, I break a leg or something. So on Wednesday, the 24th, I bought disability insurance. And then on Friday, the 26th, I broke my neck. And so... I had the financial stability that I needed. I also owned, was well, a co-owner in the largest production company west of Toronto, west of uh, Toronto, up in Canada here. And so I had I had a job. Now that's a really big deal as a wheelchair user. Being employed as a person with a disability, one of the hardest things to do, just to get that chance. Now I owned the company, so I was going to get the chance. And I had a million friends. And a million girlfriends and people in my life who really wanted to help me. And so I had everything going for me. The luckiest guy in the world. If it's going to happen anyway, it's going to be to me. Now, okay, let's take this ball and run with it. So I, I didn't spend a lot of time in the, oh, poor me stuff. Uh, that's, as I say, that meant just me. I know a lot of people get locked into that idea of I'm going to walk again. But it's a really a Hollywood idea, and it's a really a... <clears throat> It, when we did the Paralympics in, in Vancouver in 2010, one of the things I asked the media to not do was not ask what happened. It's it's always this, like the second question media media wants to know. You know, here's Brad McCarroll, and well, well, we just did it a moment ago. Here's Brad McCarroll, and he had, broke his neck in his car accident. In this context, it makes sense because we're talking about disability issues and all the rest of it. But if you're interviewing a Paralympian about you know, marathon uh, wheelchair races or whatever it is, it shouldn't matter how I got here. Whether it was a car accident where I dove into a pool with no water or I broke my neck skiing, whatever it was, what, what should matter is what I, how I'm doing now, how I'm, what I'm achieving now, where I'm going forward. As a Paralympian, all the amazing things you do Beyond that, how you got there is immaterial. But the other thing to remember is when you're talking to someone with a disability and you ask them how it happened, well, for some of us, it's the most traumatic moment in our lives. For some of us, it's a complete disaster. And so it's like, it's like you want me to share the most incredibly traumatic moment in my life just as a casual conversation. And, you know, it's like, uh, sure, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you how I broke my neck. Right after you tell me about your hemorrhoid operation. You know, it's just like, why does that matter? What is the, what is the cause of my accident? And uh, you able-bodied people, uh, well, we, we call you tabs because you're only temporarily able-bodied. doesn't matter if you're face plant at Whistler when you're you know, a teenager and you end up in a wheelchair or you're 85 and you need a walker and a hearing aid, you're going to have a disability. The only question is waiting for how long. So the bottom line on all this stuff is it doesn't matter how I got here. What matters is how I dealt with it, how I moved on. That's the important stuff. 
But sharing the most traumatic moment, I can do it because first off, it's a long time ago. And second, that's car accidents pretty common. We didn't get any details there. But for a lot of people, as soon as you ask them that, that you're taking them to a point in their lives that they've been trying to get away from since it happened. Yeah. In that Paralympic space, is that kind of synonymous with like the inspiration narrative of, um, and you kind of, like you mentioned, like sensationalizing and kind of Hollywood uh, portrayal of disability. Do you see uh, issues with how media and literature portrays disability that kind of perpetuates some of these narratives? Oh, gosh. Honestly, the media only has two stories. The first story is, look at that guy, poor bastard. The second story is, hey, look at that guy, he's a hero, poor bastard. It's always the same thing. They always want it to be sympathy. And what do you I, what do you think needs to change to maybe address that? I want empathy. I don't want sympathy. I I, I don't want preconceived notions about what I'm capable of. I, I, well, as soon as you start that down that path, as soon as you start down that path, then then a, a weird thing happens with you temporarily able-bodied people. Yeah. It's physical. It's mental. You walk up and your head's tilt a little bit and your voice goes up here somewhere and you wonder, how can I help? Can I help? What can I do to help you? And we think, well, you could let me punch you in the face. It's it's a visceral thing that happens. And, And it's because you're human. It's because you care. If I tell you a story about me breaking my neck and you don't feel some kind of empathy at least, then what the hell's wrong with you? But going down that path and and discussing the details of it uh, and how that affects anything, what's what's that got to do with anything? Other than the fact that I'm noticeably short at this point, it's none of your damn business. How do you think people can better learn to interact with individuals with disabilities and kind of communicate with them? Oh, that's, it's really simple. (laughs) We call it just ask. Yeah. Just ask. You know, I get people talk all the time. What's the best way to help a person with a disability? Just ask. You okay? Can I help you? Anything you need? It's really simple. Just reach out. I mean, mother taught you not to stare. You know, when you see a wheelchair user or someone some kind of disability, mom said, don't stare. And it's always funny to me because when I go to a crowded place like a terminal, people are so busy not staring they, they run over me or they trip over me or they, you know they look the other way and and, and the problem is it, it, it's it's that social stigma and part of the problem too is not having the right language understanding you know as people with disabilities we are people with disabilities it's a very funny thing if you think of me as a disabled person the first thing that enters your mind is i'm disabled and that little sympathy trigger happens if you think of me as a person with a disability, it's, I know it sounds silly, but it changes the whole way you interact with me. That simple little piece. Now, some people like to be called, put the disability person, that's self-identifying, and that's totally valid. And if someone says to you, I, I 
prefer to be referred to as a, you know, a disabled person or a quadriplegic or whatever it might be, that's totally fine. But as an opening opening comment or an opening salvo, as a as an able-bodied person especially, I want to be referred to as a person with a disability because when you refer to me as a person, you think of me as a person. And it changes the way you interact with me. It literally does. Yeah, it seems like the the language and the terminology that people want to be referred to by is different for everyone. So it's mm-hmm. tough when you enter, I guess, a situation or an interaction when you haven't had any conversation with that person to, like you said, the first key is to ask, but it's not always the easiest thing to start off a conversation with. Uh, how, well, how it might not even be something that you need to even ask, how do you want to be referred to as you don't need to really have those denominators to begin with, but no, you don't. And, and, and when I say just ask, I mean, just reach out. I mean, there's a person in there and, and, and people talk, don't stare. Mom said, don't stare. So you don't, but the, the net effect of that is you don't do anything. Right, you can't meet my. You can't. A lot of people can't even look at me. Won't meet my gaze. They look away. They talk around me, and I, I, I get that it's uncomfortable. But what you guys have to understand as as tabs is that your day is coming. Number one, but number two, it's not about a few wheelchair guys. We're talking about massive numbers of people. You know, in Canada, twenty four percent of the population already reports having a significant disability. I'm certain it's similar in the United States. The numbers, you know, percentage-wise, not totals, but percentage-wise, we, we mirror each other quite often. I don't know the U.S. stats as well as you know, the Canadian ones, but that 24%, the thing about that is it hides a number because all of us have at least one other person in our mind. A mother, father, sister, brother, lover, even if it's a paid caregiver, even if it's a paid lover, we have one other person in our lives that also benefits from that interaction, that, the accessible environments, the, the welcoming environments that bring us all in. So the number is not 24% affected by what we're talking about here. It's, it's 50, it's 60. I have more than one person in my life. So it's 60% of the population, 70% of the population that, that really benefits from a barrier-free approach, welcoming environments, and having you as able-bodied people understand that we're everywhere. Even yeah, I, read, not know it. I read one of the reports that the Rick Hansen Foundation put out that said that 21% of consumers, I believe, um, have disabilities. And that's representing over $100 billion of spending um, or around that figure. And so sure. if you were if you were trying to communicate the importance of accessibility to a business owner, just from like a key stakeholder standpoint, if you offered a 21% increase in market size to any business, they would be foolish not to take it. So uh, maybe mm-hmm. we can briefly talk about how accessibility uh, benefits everyone, not only those with disabilities, but also those without, um, and how businesses can kind of make some steps towards being more accessible and inclusive. Well, that's actually what's happening. You know, There's a bit of a revolution going on right now because up till now, it's always been a, a social issue. Right, like you want you want to create access for people with disabilities out of compassion, out of, out of recognition that you know they're people and they need help. 
What's happening now, though, is finally businesses and industries realizing there's a real return on investment here. Remember that I mentioned before that we're not alone. I did a big pitch to a major airport here up in Canada, and I made the economic argument. When I when I got in the room, they thought I was going to talk about the social benefits of being accessible, and there's lots of them, and they're important. But I, I went the other way. I talked about the economic issues and how it can affect them and the airport operator moving forward. And at the end of the meeting, I, uh, it was at the end of day, and I knew one of the board members there. And I, I invited him down for a beer down, down in the main concourse. I knew that the, the only, uh, only uh, bar in the whole airport had two steps up. And it went about six feet and went down two steps. I still don't know what those steps were for. But I knew that I couldn't get in there, but I, I invited the uh, vice president of corporate affairs down with me. And when we got to the steps, I said to him, look, Michael, I just wanted to make a point here that when they lose my business, they also lose your business because you're not going to go in there without me. And people with disabilities like anybody else want to travel. We always travel with somebody, not always, but we like to travel with other people, of course. So when they lost Michael's business, they lost my business. So the numbers automatically double. And Michael looked at me and he gave me a line that I've been using ever since. He said, so you're telling me that a barrier to a person with a disability is a barrier to making a profit. And that's the simple truth. The numbers are so high now. You know, and most of the numbers don't include the real driving force here, which is seniors and older adults. Those numbers are going right through the ceiling. And the thing about seniors is they don't have a disability, they have multiple disabilities. You know, hearing loss combined with mobility impairment or cognitive or vision or any combination you can think of, and it's not limited to one or two. But not only do they have multiple disabilities, but they're in complete denial. You know, my eyes are fine, my arms aren't long enough. Or my personal favorite, I can hear fine if you stop mumbling. Those guys, they're not in any of the stats. But they're, they're, they are your customers. And more importantly, they're your employees. We, we talk all the time about the aging population, but industry is just now figuring out, wait a minute, that means my workforce is aging. And I need to hang on to those guys because, number one, there's not enough people coming in behind them to take some of these jobs. And number two, it behooves me to understand who my customers really are. Like you're, you guys are in the fitness business. You tend to have younger, you know, more active people just by the nature of going to the gym. I think there's a real opportunity here for to understand uh, this aging process. What's happening is people are aging out and they'll leave your gyms and they look for other ways of, of having that same fitness level. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at least a third of our revenue comes from either those with a diagnosed intellectual or physical disability or like you mentioned, aging uh, population that come to us because they recognize that we work with people with disabilities and we're likely empathetic and willing to make modifications specific for them. Um, so if any gym could immediately get a, a one third bump in revenue just by being more accessible and inclusive, um, there wouldn't be so many gyms going out of business maybe. What business can say no to 30%, 40% of the customer? Not, you know, it's just not reasonable. And 
you know, and, you know, and sports and, and fitness have always been a key part of rehabilitation. It drives the whole process. You know, without sport, you know, something as simple as a, a volleyball game or playing wheelchair basketball, you know, it, it not only helps you physically because of the fitness level, but it's that social key, it's that interaction. There's something going on here that there's, 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 you know, life goes on. Yeah, so we we, we talk about accessibility being more than just the physical environment. Um, I mean, a sense of inclusion by definition is is environment where you feel a sense of belonging. Uh, so when you look at like practical applications of UDL, you're looking beyond just the physical environment as well, right? You're looking beyond ADA standards. Oh yeah, you know the ADA. You know the ADA was groundbreaking when it came in, but the reality is the ADA itself hasn't been updated since 2010, and so you know, that creates all kinds of problems. Because it calls for things like TTY, telephone uh, teletype, or what's it also? It's called TDY and TDD. It's it's been gone so long I can't remember the acronyms. But telephone device for the deaf. You know, ADA requires businesses to have that, public terminals at least to have that. They don't make those anymore. They haven't, you know, when when email and texting came along, it blew all that stuff out of the water. For the deaf community, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to have texting and email. But the ADA still requires it. So you can't build an ADA-compliant terminal building right now because you can't get TTY machines. The fact that it's so far behind is, is problematic. The great thing about the ADA is it broke a lot of ground. It, it, it got a lot of attention. It got people thinking in the right terms. But the problem is it's completely, it's, it's behind. It's the nature of codes, though. Codes are always behind. It takes an average of 7 to 11 years to change a code and get it implemented, depending on where you are and who you are, which means codes are always 7 to 11 years behind the need. And so that's problematic. That's why we created the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Program to bring people up and understand that a code minimum access strategy really only addresses mobility, wheelchair users more than that. And so if you're addressing only mobility issues, then you're missing about 70% of the rest of the community of people with disabilities. And that means you're missing 70% of the return on investment as a business owner. So you have to understand it's not about a few wheelchair guys. It's also about people with hearing loss, people with vision loss, people with deaf, people with blind. You know, they're all separate disciplines. The neurodiverse community, as you well know, is, is, is a massive group of people. And the accommodation to make their lives better isn't very difficult, really. There's lots of little things you can do. It's just a matter of understanding who your clients really are. It takes three things to create meaningful access. First, you have to know who, who your customers are, who your clients are, who people with disabilities really are. Second, you have to understand that access is a management decision more than a design decision. You know, it, architects, planners, facility operators will build anything you want, as long as the owners and, and operators want it first. And the third thing is you have to professionalize the delivery of accessible design. It can't come from advocates anymore. We have to have pros in the field, accredited professionals that the industry can call on and rely on that information just like they would any other consultant, roof consultant or environmental consultant or whatever it might be. 
having those three things in place means you can deliver meaningful access and meaningful access is the whole experience. If you have an accessible washroom and nothing else in your facility works for people with disabilities, that's not accessible. It might need code. But if you want to have meaningful access, it's the whole situation. From the moment you get out of your car or off a bus and walk in the building, it's the reception desk. It's the, it's the flow through the building. It's, do you have emergency exiting? You know, the code works really hard at getting people with disabilities into facilities and doesn't care at all about getting us out in case of emergency. There's no requirement for emergency egress to be accessible. Now, the next time you're standing in front of an elevator, you see that little plaque that says, in case of fire, take stairs. Where's the little plaque that tells me what to do? There's no little plaque. I'm on my own. You, you mentioned meaningful access. I think in the literature, that's sometimes referred to as usability as well. So we, we talk a bit about that in, in the course uh, that we teach where you can't just meet the ADA standards. Like the experience goes beyond just getting into the building. Um, yeah. what is, what is your certification program like? Cause I think I'm interested in learning about it because we're trying to do something a little similar in terms of like road races. So we're trying to come up with standards for five K's, 10 K's half marathons, uh, and like give race directors a manual essentially more or less to make sure their registration platforms accessible, make sure when you arrive at the event, you have everything you need to participate even like encouraging more people with disabilities to participate uh, participate in events like this is a challenge in of itself. So uh, I'm very curious as to how you guys went about developing your program as well as how you implement it. And maybe even like a little bit of like the transient nature of it. Like if you give someone an accessibility grade one year, but then they regress or they progress, like how often is that score or grade modified? Under the uh, our program, the RHFPC, we uh, we reevaluate every five years. So you have to have your certification updated every five years, and uh, it's a uh, the whole purpose behind the RHFPC when it, when we first created it was to understand that we didn't need another code. We didn't. We needed a reference code, but what we didn't need is someone arguing that the door should be, you know, thirty six inches versus thirty two inches. That argument, that code approach, it, it, that prescriptive approach, is just too limiting. What we decided to do is come in and, and, and provide operators and owners with a sheet that tells them what they've got now. It's a snapshot. It's like, almost like a financial statement. Here's your facility right now. Here's who it works for. Here's who it doesn't work for. But not to be the code police, not to come and wag our fender and, and say all the things you didn't do right. Sometimes there's great things. And one of our things that our program does that I really I really like is we reward in, innovation points. Sometimes people do some really innovative things. And that, I think I think you need credit for that. You need to understand that. But what you really need to understand is that access... <laughs> When someone says to you they want their building to be accessible, the next question on your mouth has to be accessible to who? To people with wheelchairs, people with, people are blind, people are deaf. Who are, are you trying to get the whole community? Or are you focusing on one? Do you, do you understand that even within that, you say, "Well, I want to be wheelchair accessible." You want to be wheelchair accessible to the high functioning paraplegics like Rick Hansen, or you want to be wheelchair accessible to me or my mother who can't use a one in twelve ramp? One in 12 rounds is too steep for us. You have to understand those kind of moving targets. 
So the RHFAC came along and said, okay, we're, we're going to assess a building built in 1938. This just happened, actually, the uh, Saskatchewan Legislative Building. And so it was built in 1938. All the doors are 28 inches wide. So the clear space inside is 26. So you can't get a power chair through the front door. Does that make it inaccessible? Well, not to people who are deaf, not to people who are blind, and not to high-functioning paras and their tiny little chairs. But, it's, but at the same time, it's not accessible to a lot of people. So we just put it on a scale of one to five. Typically, code would be three. Rates are really great. You know, sliding motion control door would be five, and anything below that would be ones, ones or twos. And we literally get a weighted scale on it. So when we look at your building, we break it up into eight different parts. You know, be it sanitary facilities, emergency egress, interior circulation, signage and wayfinding, et cetera, et cetera. And we break it all down and, and we, we literally have a trained accessor. Remember, this is not a checklist. The only people that can use the RHFAC system are people who have taken the course and passed it and then uh, and then been adjudicated by a third party, in our case, Canadian Standards Association, who say, yes, you, you write this exam and yes, you do know. Yes, you are accredited. That person now takes the RHFAC template and, and lays it over the building and says, okay, Here's where it works. Here's where it doesn't work. On a weighted scale, you, you, you know, we've if you get 60% of the available points, then you're considered certified accessible. If you get over 80, you're certified accessible gold. But there's a lot of ways of getting there. It's not a fixed, you know, what works for a, a rec center is not going to be the same criteria for a library. And what works for a library is not the same as for a fitness center. So what we did is we recognized that every business is different. And how they approach access is going to be different. But what they need to know is a snapshot of a facility right now. Who is it working for? How you know, Are your doors wide enough for the most people? You know, is the acoustics in your room working? Do you have emergency exits? All that stuff is laid out. So after you've done, a after the, the access assessor has done a complete review of your site and rated those things on that scale, then they come up with a number. Right? And, and somewhere on this scale is where you're going to be. And, and, and for example, again, I'll use a Canadian example, but if you built a, a retail office space or, or even a school or a multifamily dwelling, if you built that to meet all the code requirements of the Ontario Building Code, which is probably one of the strongest codes in Canada, but if you made all of those accessibility requirements, you'd land about 40% on our scale. Because they don't consider other issues, blind and hard of hearing, neurodiverse. They're so focused on mobility because that's the nature of codes. So our job was to give, create a, a, a reference standard that can lay over anybody else's standard, whether it was ADA, whether it was an you know, international building code, which California uses a lot. Canada, we have CSA, we have Accessible Standards Canada, we have all kinds of different standards. And that's part of the problem. Everybody was using different standards, different codes, and so they're arriving at similar conclusions, but using different language and different methodology. And we came in and said, no, no, let's everybody do it the same way. Let's everybody use the same language. Let's everybody use the same methodology. Let's everybody have the same training. And now everything we do is measurable because we're all talking the same language. Before, well, in, in anywhere you go now, 
if if they they probably done a really nice job and they met all the code requirements in their area, but their language is different, their methodology is different, so it's not measurable. I can't compare their building to mine because I don't know what standards they used. If everybody was using the RHFAC, which is our goal, and we've rated over 2,000 buildings now, and we've got 500 and something people trained in our system, by having common language, by having common methodology, not only can we address the issues, because you know things that get measured get, get funded, but not only can we do that, but we can change the culture around this. Our, 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 our object of our exercise for us was never to create a whole bunch more access consultants. There's lots of them around. They're really quite good ones. I, I used to be one. I used to compete with all these people. I know they're really good. That wasn't the game. The game was to try to change the existing culture. The important thing was to take existing architects, planners, building inspectors, carpenters, plumbers, the people doing the work, and helping them understand the reality of a disability and who people with disabilities really are and how to make this work and, and, and seize that return on investment. You know, we've, we've seen a lot of people lately, a lot of employers, and they're wringing their hands and they're clutching their pearls because they can't find enough people to work. You know, that whole work ethics has changed a little bit. But for us, it drives us nuts because we know that 57% of our community is unemployed. Even though we're highly skilled, most of us are highly educated. I mean, if you're looking for an employee that's dedicated, a problem solver, someone who can, you know, go with the flow, a person with a disability is the perfect answer because we do that every morning just to get out of bed. So having that accessible premises opens up the customer side, certainly, but it also opens up the employee side. And that's a huge benefit to owners and operators anywhere, no matter what business you're in. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of gold in there. Um, are there prerequisites for taking your course? We have several courses. So we have courses that are entry level that there's no prerequisites required. Uh, we're going through a big change now, and some of these names will change in the, in the spring of next year. But right now we have something called Accessibility 101, which is, basically an introductory course on universal design and why was the point and and the whole idea of the practical application of universal design i mean universal design isn't a thing in and of itself it's a concept it's a way of approaching a project so we have accessibility 101 and that's an online course uh but we have the uh, pro courses which are rhfac so if you wanted to end up either being an assessor or, or having that knowledge within your company um, that there are prerequisites for that, so you have to have experience in the built environment, whether that's as an architect, an engineer, uh, you know, construction site worker. Because we we don't have the time to teach you how to read drawings, we don't have the time to teach you how to read codes. But it's about a forty-eight hour online course available right now, or you can attend it in person in uh, post-secondary schools right across Canada. So there's I think eight locations now. So that's how, you know, that's the general approach. But the idea is quite simple, is to get that common language, common methodology. And if we're all singing the same song, then we can now address the issues. Yeah, that's, that's definitely something I'm interested in, um, purely from like a, a learning experience. Um, was there a process of like validating it? Or did you consult with a lot of people, kind of like a Delphi research project? Oh man, yes, right from day one. 
so what we did eight years ago now, it's hard to believe it was eight years ago, but eight years ago, we started the process and then we got, you know, the, the first rating system on paper. And it was, the idea was, let's look at every, all the other efforts around the world from Australia to Iceland's doing amazing things. Ireland's doing amazing things. They knew, they knew your New York standards is quite good. It's developed by the Idea Center out of Buffalo. Really good standards, all code based, all prescription, prescriptive rather. Um, you know, saying the door should be you know, 36 inches or this, you know, all, all these fixed heights and fixed things. But what we wanted to do is make sure we didn't miss anything. So we reviewed all those things and tried to bring it into our world, which was not prescriptive, but rather just reference. And when we did that, we ended up with a, a questionnaire that, a, that an assessor would take to the site would be, it was over 1,300 uh, questions long, and that's just completely impractical. So we vetted that and got it down to a pilot stage. Then we took it out and we tried to pilot it in a few locations. And then we brought the whole thing back and we sat down with uh, pretty much every major organization of and for people with disabilities in Canada. And we went through it line by line and heard their comments on it. And, and many people said, you know, you need to add this or you should take away that. Or, but the whole community got involved. And so we took that then and that became another version of it. Um, and then we formed a technical committee, which is made up of the people with lived experience, people who are, and, and, and even broader than that, people with architecture experience, people doing the actual work in the trenches. And, and so that committee is, I think, 48 people from all walks of the actual practical application side. And they had direct input and we updated it from there. And then we formed an, formed an advisory committee from industry. You know, municipalities, large project management companies. Um, I think there's 13, 14 on that committee. So getting direct input from the people who have to implement the change. You know, in our in our community, we forget that when we you know create these new codes and raise that bar higher and higher, we always forget to invite the people to the table who are actually paying for it, and that's the industry. So we made darn sure that they had direct input into our program. And, and when we did that, it was amazing what happened. They suddenly started seeing the return on investment, stopped seeing it as, as you know, more red tape, more bureaucracy, more frustration because we can't do what we want to do because we have to meet all these access requirements. And instead saw the opportunity that Universal Design brought to the table by bringing more people into the business, more people into the employment side. And um, a miracle happened. And they, you know, they <laughs> if you build it, they will come. Well, they started to see it. And so we, we that all those are ongoing. Those committees meet three times a year, I think, maybe four. And that input is constant because access is a moving target. You have to stay on top of it. it, it you know what, what was important for accessibility in the '70s is taken for granted now, and we're looking at we're looking at other areas, whether it's neurodiverse or environmental sensitivities or whatever it might be. Access isn't a, you know, a thing to remember about accessibility. Is it's not black or white. There's no yes or no. Nobody's right, nobody's wrong. And in fact, when you do something for one group, you often create a problem for another. You know, I, I, I had a problem at you know, these airport terminals, they're big glass tile buildings, and they just get so noisy, it's crazy. So we put carpet down, dampen down the noise, really help people with hearing loss. 
Well, that was great. We helped people with hearing loss. We made it harder, though, for people using wheeled mobility devices. So anybody using a wheelchair pushing on carpet, it's going to be harder for them. So did I create a barrier or did I take one away? Well, when we looked at it, we said, well, you know, for every person using a wheeled mobility device in, in an airport terminal, there's about 4,000 people who are hard of hearing. So the importance of getting that sound level down was really critical. So the greater good for the greater number of people, universal design, that's what you're trying to strive for. Now, that doesn't mean you just don't, you know, forget the, you know, the wheelchair guys. You find a better way. You know, what we ended up doing was a, a concept called path within a path. So we cut out pieces of the carpet so there's bare floor so you could roll along. And that sort of solved both problems. But it, there's no, but my point is there's no yes or no. There's both black or white. It's not like other areas where, you know, it's sustainability, where it's off-gassing or it isn't. For us, it's, it's a totally gray environment. So when you're building accessibility into your facilities, you have to understand that no matter what you do, you're never going to get it making for 100% for everyone. It just doesn't work that way. You can't make any facility 100% accessible for all people with all disabilities at all times and all weather conditions and all occupancies. It just can't be done. So should businesses steer away from referring to themselves as accessible or kind of like at what point do you get to say that you're accessible or how can I communicate to you as a wheelchair user that I want you in my gym if I don't have some verbiage online that says inclusive, uh, accessible, et cetera? Be specific. You know, you, you, you can say you're wheelchair accessible. Say what you are. But something like we're accessible or we're fully accessible Fully accessible is one of those phrases we always laugh at. You know, if you say you're accessible, it means you have a ramp. And if you say you're fully accessible, it means you have two ramps. <laughs> Bottom line on it is be, be accurate, be real. Don't be afraid. Often businesses are afraid to say, well, I, I'm, I'm not accessible to people who are deaf because that opens them up to, you know, in your country, maybe, maybe legal action, maybe get sued under the ADA or whatever it is. But they're hesitant to do that. But the more information you provide, the better it is. You can say you're wheelchair accessible. You can say that you you special considerations for people who are uh, sight impaired. You can say that. Do say that. Just don't pretend that it's, it's all things to all being. Fully accessible means nothing in our community because we know you don't know what that means. Yeah, that, that's good advice. And just like you mentioned, it's a moving target. So would you want to see a business be reactionary to like every client's concerns? Like how would you want us to handle in access? No, I definitely do not want you to do that. I, I want you to I want you to understand that this is a business opportunity like any other one. And I want you to sit down and, and figure out over the long term, what's the best thing for your business? Well, how's this going to work for you guys? You know, I've worked on mega projects like the 2008 uh, uh, Beijing Olympic Games, which is the largest Paralympic event I think ever held. I did 2010 games in Whistler, and I've done tiny little bakeries and, and even a, a baggage cart one time. The thing they all had in common is they understood what access meant to their organization. It, it, it's, it's too big 
you can't fit everything in and, it and everything doesn't apply to your organization. Understanding how access will benefit your organization, developing a long-term plan, that's what the RHFAC really is. It, it gives you a one sheet to look at and say, okay, uh, here's what I have to do. I'm, I'm weak in Washington. I'm strong in signage. I'm weak over here. So now you can, it becomes a planning tool. So what I want to do is to understand what's happening to the demographics. You know, you guys are running gyms. And, and, and in your case, you've got a large percent of neurodiverse community. Congratulations, by the way, that's a real feat. But understand that, you know, just understanding that your clientele is getting older, and what's that going to mean? And, and if you, I'm making all kinds of assumptions here, but if I'm running a gym, a conventional gym, and typically it's going to be younger people who are highly fit and maybe bodybuilders, that kind of, that kind of crew, but understanding that they're going to age out. And they're going to stop using your facility. So why not capture that? Why not have your facility develop over time to accommodate older adults and seniors? Because the exercise patterns will change. But what we don't want to do is we don't want to lose those guys as customers. But if you if you keep presenting yourselves as this great place for young, able-bodied males, then you're going to lose them. Eventually, they're going to move on, and they'll end up in senior centers, which is the other end of the spectrum, which nobody really wants to do, but it's at least it's it's some kind of exercise. It's some kind of something. But I want yeah. I want you to use all these stats as, as a business, as a planning tool. I don't understand where the demographics are going to take your clients, both new ones, you, you know, as you become more accessible, you can get new clients. But how do you keep the ones you got? Well, you you, you accommodate them. You, you know, as people get older, you know, again, I'm not making all kinds of assumptions here, but often when I've been to fitness centers and gyms is really loud and older adults and seniors hate loud so what can you do about that well you can plan to change the acoustics of your your facility but do it as a plan i don't want you to say well i got i got a client who's low vision so i'm, I'm going to suddenly change everything in the building no you should say okay there's a client with low vision coming my way i think that's the tip of the iceberg how can i as part of my whole planning process as part of my uh, working the long-term prospects for my business, what can I do? So a year from now, can I make the washrooms better? You know, a year from now, can I do improve the acoustics? Make it part of your rural business plan because the demographics are changing. And if you're going to keep up with that, if you're going to stay in business, then what you have to do is understand that change and accommodate it. But do it as part, as part of your bound. Don't, don't, don't need your... Those, you know, if you got a chance to get a, a blind guy, oh, I'm going to use a blind person. I'm going to change everything. No, you don't. But use that as a as a as a motivator. But make it part of your business plan. It's got to be part of the long term planning. Doing this stuff as a knee jerk reaction has been part of the problem. Yeah, I think that answers a question that we've wrapped up a lot of these episodes with, which is kind of what do you think needs to be done to make the fitness industry more accessible? And it sounds like having a long-term plan, understanding the needs of clients, understanding the evolution of your clients and kind of retaining that lifetime value of your customers uh, by Precisely. understanding their needs. That's exactly right. The lifetime value and, and what they bring to the table. And, and, and Fitness and sports is such a critical part of, of, of staying healthy, of staying active, of staying alert. Don't make it inaccessible because it's focused on 
young men. <laughs> God bless young men, but no, it's not going to do it. Yeah. Well, Brad, it's been an honor to have you as a guest. Um, this platform's introduced me to uh, some incredibly interesting and uh, insightful people that I feel uh, very fortunate to get to talk to. So thank you for uh, joining me today for uh, what I think has been uh, probably my most informative episode in terms of uh, notes that I've taken throughout the conversation. So I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so happy to be here. You're, it's a very deep well you're plumbing here. And uh, if there's an opportunity to, to revisit this or, or maybe dive down on a couple of things, I'm happy to do that too. But um, my my parting note will be, if you build it, they will come. And uh, if you don't build it, they won't come. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.